This is my friend Ron Bonchi. Hi, Reid. In the fierce battle over President Trump's nominee to take a seat on the Supreme Court, Ron plays an important role. He's what they call a Sherpa. His job is to prepare Judge Neil Gorsuch for the long and grinding process that will ultimately lead to a confirmation vote. I asked Ron to tell me about the process. Sorry, can't comment about any of that, Reid. Okay, that didn't work. But there are plenty of other people who have acted as Sherpas to important nominees in the past. And to pull back the curtain on the strange saga of presidential nominees, we asked a bunch of them to tell their story. Hey, I'm Reed Wilson, and you're listening to the Hills History Cast. Today, we'll take a look at what a presidential nominee goes through and just how the fight on Capitol Hill got so contentious. Let's start our story in mid-April 2009, when Supreme Court Justice David Souter made a quiet call to the White House. Souter was about to turn 70, and he'd been on the bench for almost two decades. He told President Obama he would retire, giving Obama the first opportunity to pick his own Supreme Court nominee. That's when Stephanie Cutter got involved. That's my colleague Lydia Wheeler. She covers the Supreme Court for The Hill. Stephanie Cutter is one of those famous for Washington types. She's the kind of person who knows senators by their first names and gives advice to presidents. When Souter retired, Obama drew up a short list of his possible nominees. Cutter, who was working at the Treasury Department at the time, started building a team that would be ready when Obama made his decision. For Supreme Court nominees, we took that short list and we game planned out every single one of them about what it would take to get them through. And that doesn't influence the president's decision, but at least you know when that decision is made, you can flip that switch and start going. Obama settled on Sonia Sotomayor, a U.S. Court of Appeals judge in the Second Circuit in New York. By the time he introduced Sotomayor, Cutter's team knew her as well as she knew herself. They had combed through every scrap of paper Sotomayor had ever put her name on to try to anticipate any pitfalls she might face in the confirmation process. There's always something in somebody's record that you, you know, there's no perfect candidate for anything (laughs) Uh, because we're humans and we live lives before we get to that point. Whether it's a certain legal opinion or a comment in a speech that somebody made or an affiliation that they have or maybe a former mentor or a writing Uh, commentary that they've done. It's all of those things. It could be financial disclosures or taxes or something in someone's past that you know is going to come roaring back. So that's, that's the purpose of the vetting. For Sotomayor, the big landmine was her comment that a wise Latina would make a better decision than a white male. That comment played on a loop on Fox News. But I still think she must explain why she went on the record in public saying, because of your race or gender, you're a better or worse judge. That's a racist statement Wait, we by have, any I calculation. I think she's made one of the most outrageous racist marks, remarks I've, I've, I've heard. Gosh, that smacks of uh, racism, but maybe it's just me, Ed. And Sotomayor's team knew she'd have to answer for it. All that vetting happens before the nominee begins the most grueling parts of the confirmation process meeting with the senators who will vote on their nomination, and preparing for hearings that will beam their face across every cable channel and nightly news broadcast in the country. But all of this is new for a judge who mostly sits away from the crazy partisanship and politicking of Washington. A judge sits isolated from all of these theatrics (laughs) that we go through as people in politics. So they don't worry about you know, uh, how they're portrayed, how, what they say in meetings, or, you know, the political process of something. They're judges. They're, they are a separate branch of government, isolated from the world of politics. They are supposed to be ruling on the law and just the law. So when they enter this world of confirmation, it's, 
you know, it's a process for them uh, to get up to speed. The meetings with individual senators are opportunities for a nominee to answer questions in private. They go in knowing as much as they can about a senator's primary concerns, and they prepare for every question they might reasonably get. I asked Cutter just how much detail they might get into. Like, would they know that Lindsey Graham only likes green M&Ms? She said maybe not that much detail. You certainly know what Lindsey Graham's position is on torture and executive power. Or, you know, you would know a lot about campaign finance laws going in to meet with John McCain. You know, it, it, everybody... Every senator also has a record. It's not hard to predict the kinds of things they're going to ask about. Nominees can also use the private meetings to deliver their own message. Yeah, we saw that with Judge Gorsuch in February, right after he was nominated. President Trump had attacked judges who ruled against his executive order on immigration, and Gorsuch used a meeting with Senator Richard Blumenthal, a Democrat from Connecticut, to give himself some distance. He called Trump's remarks disheartening and demoralizing. Stephanie Cutter said the fact that Gorsuch made those comments to a Democrat wasn't an accident. It was no surprise to see what Judge Gorsuch did last week. He knew he was going to get a question about President Trump's comments on judges. So he very deftly staged that answer and, and gave it to a Democrat to put out. It, you know, those things are never unplanned. He knew exactly what he was going to say in that meeting, and they knew exactly who they wanted to put it out. In between all those private meetings, the nominees are preparing for confirmation hearings. They spend hours and hours going over every question they might conceivably get, from the standard questions about hot-button issues to any landmines in their own record. Matt Miller is another Democrat who spent time preparing a nominee for confirmation. In his case, he worked for Eric Holder, President Obama's first attorney general. Miller says they pretended to be senators, put Holder in a chair, and peppered him with questions. By the time a nominee takes uh, takes, uh, his chair at a hearing, he will probably, he or she will probably have spent 20, 30 hours just answering questions, maybe more. Your goal in prep is to think of all the possible situations. You don't want the witness to be surprised by any question he gets. And so you try hard to get under their skin because if you can make a a witness erupt in a a mood session, there's a good chance they're going to erupt when the lights are on in the hearing. There are a lot of ways you can lose at a a hearing, and the biggest way you can lose is to lose your cool. You can sit through an eight-hour hearing, and if you lose your cool one time, that's what makes it on the news, and that's what everyone sees. How do you make sure your nominee doesn't erupt? You try to get under their skin. I got under Holder's skin repeatedly, <laughs> both in, in confirmation, and then I went on to work for him at the Justice Department. And uh, there were a number of times when um, I was doing doing moot hearings and asked him a series of questions, and he answered. And then at the end of them, he looked at me and said, you're fired. And he was always joking, but there were times I w- was a little uncertain. <laughs> Miller said most of the questions senators ask are pretty obvious and that the same senators have been asking the same questions for years. The senators have their pet issues, and if you do your research, oftentimes you know what they are and you can get ready for them. In, uh, in Jeff Sessions' hearing, uh, Orrin Hatch asked a question that, if you've been watching these hearings for a while, was as predictable as can be. Um, he asked Sessions, there is, a, uh, there is a federal obscenity statute, and there was an office in the Department of Justice that prosecuted adults for consuming adult pornography. Not child pornography, adult pornography. Hatch has had this hobby horse for years and would constantly ask Holder about it, and Holder's answer was always kind of, 
Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. I'll I'll look into that. I mean, no one's prosecuting adults for consenting adult pornography anymore. Both Sotomayor and Holder won confirmation, but their nominations were emblematic of a new trend in confirmation fights. Only nine Republicans voted to confirm Sotomayor, and only 17 Republicans voted for Holder. We've seen this same trend in President Trump's early nominees. Not a single Democrat voted to confirm Education Secretary Betsy DeVos. Only a few voted for EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt, and only one voted to confirm Attorney General Jeff Sessions. It's not likely that Gorsuch is going to get that many Democratic votes either. Members of the cabinet serve at the president's pleasure, and they leave almost always when the president leaves. Not so for members of the federal judiciary. These are lifetime appointments or appointments during good behavior. It's a game for very high stakes. Virtually everything is grist uh, for the polarization mill. And certainly, in, I would say increasingly over the past 60 years, political battles have been conducted over the bodies, sometimes the supine bodies, of Supreme Court nominees. That's Bill Galston, a senior fellow at the Brookings Institute and an expert on presidential administrations. Galston said the big fights over Supreme Court nominees have been building for decades. The heightened stakes, he said, started when the public began associated some court decisions with real-world political consequences. Starting with the Brown v. Board decision and continuing off and on ever since, uh, Supreme Court nominees have become part of the political fight. It was perceived to be more political because it made a constitutional decision whose consequences were vast and disruptive for long-established practices. Uh, and it, it set in motion one of the most turbulent periods in American history, perhaps even more consequential for the court than Brown v. Board, uh, was Roe v. Wade. Because Brown v. Board, for all of its contentiousness, became accepted as not only part of the American mainstream, but almost definitional of it. And so there are many uh, conservative judges who believe that Roe v. Wade was badly decided and are willing to say so. There are very, very few who will take a similar position with regard to Brown v. Board. Gorsuch isn't going to tell senators what he thinks of Roe v. Wade. Supreme Court nominees will say they don't want to comment on cases that could come before the court again. But you'd better believe that everyone knows where he stands. So there's a distinction between issue, issues which become settled, even if they're contentious, because an American consensus you know, uh, gathers around them, like a pearl developing around a grain of sand in an oyster. And there are others where the disagreement and the abrasion are ongoing. And uh, Brown is in the former category, Roe is in the latter court category. And so we've reached a point now where attitudes on Roe are the closest thing we have to a litmus test in both political parties. And the two parties only continue to escalate. Democrats helped sink Robert Bork, one of Ronald Reagan's nominees, to fill a Supreme Court seat. Republicans voted in larger numbers against Bill Clinton's nominees. Democrats, including Obama, voted against John Roberts' nomination. And then Republicans refused to even hold hearings on Obama's last nominee, Merrick Garland. 
That, Galston says, was a whole new level of escalation. I think it will take Democrats a very long time to treat, uh, to forget the way that Judge Garland was treated. Very long time. Cutter said she doesn't see anything that would reverse the trend. When Republicans are out of power, they escalate. When Democrats are out of power, they escalate. And it continues to build, build, and build. So that's where we stand, in the midst of a spiral of partisanship that neither side knows how to or wants to get out of. Good luck, Judge Gorsuch, on navigating those stormy seas. Thanks for listening today. In the coming weeks and months, we'll roll out a series of episodes examining what's happening on Capitol Hill, the historical roots of this crazy system of government of ours, and the rich cultural history that you'll find all around D.C. Our thanks to Ron Bonjean, Bill Galston, and the team at Brookings, Stephanie Cutter, and Matt Miller for taking some time with us. Thanks, as always, to our all-star producers, Moral Whiteman and Lisa Rule. And thank you, Lydia, for hanging out with me today. You got it, Reed. Hey, we want to know what you thought of our show today and what you want to hear about in the future. So send us your feedback to podcast at thehill.com. And don't forget to rate us on iTunes. Five stars, five stars. For Reed Wilson, I'm Lydia Wheeler, and thanks for listening to The Hill's History Cast.